what is your view of God? That's one of my favorite questions as I meet people. Not right away, but as the conversation develops, what do you think about God? Who, Who do you think God is? And so many times the way that we answer that, well, defines whether we want to be drawn to God or be repelled by God. Gramps, judge, friend, savior, (laughs) killjoy. Whoa, that Bible is thick, and there's so many do-nots. I just don't think that would be the God, the person that I'm drawn to. I have so many questions about God. Well, Jesus was God in the flesh. And he lived about 2,000 years ago. And one of the reasons he came was to be able to show us who God is. Eventually, Christ died on the cross, paid our debt for sin, was resurrected from the tomb, which we just celebrated last week, and is reigning with God right now. But when Jesus was alive, when Jesus was here those 30 to 33 years, he started his ministry at about 30 years old. And the word on the street was, he was a friend to tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. Now, actually, that's not exactly right. Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. But in Luke chapter 7, the gospel writer says this, is that Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. And he was talking about life and ministry and John the Baptist's reputation. And then he switched gears right away. And to the people who were out there, who were listening, he said, and just so you know, the Son of Man, speaking about himself, feasts and drinks. And you say, or the people out there say, he is a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. When we know that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, which is so difficult in some ways to understand. But we know that he lived his life totally dependent on God and did not sin. So Jesus wasn't a glutton and wasn't a drunk. But he hung out with tax collectors and sinners So maybe it made him look like a friend. Maybe. But Jesus did hang out with sinners. And we don't sometimes like that word. Yet he did not engage in their vices. He was able to love the sinner and not the sin. Jesus came to save everyone and was very pleased to welcome anyone open to the gospel who wants to repent of their sin and willing to put their faith in him. Jesus was simply taking his ministry to the neediest people on the planet at that moment. If you would, why don't you turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 15. 
the scripture will be on the screen behind me. But we're going to start off reading the first two verses. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. This sets it all up. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees, and and for some of those who might be new, the, the religious elite of that day and teachers of religious law complain that he was even associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. The religious complained. Jesus hangs and eats with the scum. It's literally the word he used that the Pharisees used at other times in the scriptures. Now, tax collectors to us, we think of maybe IRS or they're not our favorite people, you know. But back in the first century, tax collectors were notoriously corrupt and universally hated. They were utter outcasts regarded as the low of the low in that culture. Jesus shocked all of society and outraged the religious leaders when he reached out to such people. So Jesus told three short stories to explain his behavior. That's where we are in Luke 15. He talked about a lost lamb, a lost coin, and two lost sons. Jesus wanted to teach us about our God, our assiduous God, how he loves the lost and he pursues the lost and joyously throws a party when they repent and are found. The first two stories, a lost lamb and a lost coin, introduce the third. The third appalled the righteous. I know most of you, you've read this story. You may have even heard it often, and you're not appalled by the story. It doesn't seem to affect you like that. So why were these religious elites, those who are supposed to be closest to God, so offended? Well, right in the beginning, I'd like to thank Timothy Keller, John MacArthur, and Kenneth Bailey. All of their works in this chapter have really helped me understand Luke 15 and certainly influenced the series. But let's read Luke 15, 11 through 24, which illustrates our assiduous God to the Pharisees who simply didn't get God. I'm sensing this text not only was good for them, but I think it will be good for us. This story was told near the end of Christ's ministry during the third year of his disciple-making. So let's follow along. Luke 15, starting in verse 11.
I think I'll read it. <laughs> Luke 15, starting at verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked so good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf. We've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead, and now he has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. This story is a great story without the context, but this becomes an amazingly super-duper story if you understand the context. Hopefully your awe of God will grow once we fill in some of these blanks. This is not a warm, fuzzy tale. It's a story that was told to shock and offend and infuriate. Jesus didn't tell the story to warm hearts, but he told them to shatter the Pharisees' view about God, sin, and salvation. He literally is redefining them. This story reflects God's preoccupation with forgiveness and divine grace. But before we dig in, let's pray. Father, we open up your book to hear your words. We know the Holy Spirit is active We know that we will learn about you. We know that your word inspires and your word convicts. And we know, God, that this is a pretty familiar story. So we would ask that you would teach us. You would help us understand who you are. You would help us, give us insight that we normally wouldn't have. We thank you, Father, for opportunities like this to talk about you, 
to help us clarify who you are and how you act. God, when we truly see you, when we see you clearly, we are overwhelmed by your grace. We pray even now, God, that you would not only work in our church, whether it be here in the building or online, but that you would work in churches all over, not only in this state and in this country, but all over our world. We pray specifically, Father, for three churches right in our area. We pray for Chaina Lakes Community Church and for Meadowland and for Orchard. Although there's other Orchard churches, we're praying for the one in McHenry today. And we pray, dear God, that you would use those teachers and your word and, and that you would send out your people to be salt and light. We also pray for all those workers downstairs, for all the kids who are there. We pray, Lord, that your word would be powerfully presented, that they would hear and understand and respond. We are so grateful for them. We ask now, God, open our eyes. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, back to verse 11 and 12, chapter 15. To illustrate this point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Almost seems like a reasonable, uh, I mean, request. Hey, hey Dad, <laughs> I want to leave a little bit early. Uh, can you give me my inheritance? I, I, I just need it. The younger son basically said, I want my share right now. Now, what we don't understand in this first century, this showed extreme disrespect. This younger son resented his father's authority and literally, if you want to put it this way, he wanted his dad dead. <laughs> Imagine that conversation. Hey, dad, can I have my stuff now? I want you dead. Most of us probably wouldn't respond real well. This was a gutsy, shocking, and basically unheard of discussion in the first century. This younger son was guilty of this disrespect and could expect to be permanently dismissed from the family. Or we might use the word shunned or maybe even more drastic, considered dead. You're not even part of our family. And given the social structure of Israel, this was the lowest a son could go. So the father agreed to divide his wealth. We just read that. But as soon as Jesus told that story, you could hear this. Are you kidding? This was a difficult request, even more so in this culture where wealth was measured in livestock and land rather than having money in the bank. This would humiliate the father and bring great shame on the family. 
the Pharisees would have expected the father of the story to drop the hammer, as we would say. But he didn't. He didn't. Then we go on. Look at verse 13. And a few days later, after his dad got the money together or whatever, this unpacked all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him out to his field to feed pigs. Again, get the picture. This is a Jewish boy going out to the field to feed pigs, all right? A young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but nobody gave him anything. A famine arrives, and he becomes desperate. He gets a job at a local farm of feeding pigs. He got to a place in his life that was so low, and he was so hungry that the food he was feeding pigs looked good. Now, I I grew up in the city, and I'm not at all wise to what farmers feed pigs. But I can tell you this, there's a couple pigs up at Silver Birch, and I'm not talking about people. Talking about pigs. And I know what they feed them. All right? I've been there. And there is never, ever, ever once when they scoop that pig slop out that I said, Oh, Sharon, I'm so hungry. Let's go eat. It doesn't work that way. You know, you're holding vomit in, the stink, the stench. And these things are, you know, like, okay, man, I don't know why you're eating that stuff. But let's pause right here. Because this is an amazing picture of sin. This young man is a classic illustration of an undisciplined youngin who wastes the best part of his life. He is extravagant, self-indulgent, and becomes a slave to his own lusts and sin. He is living uh, in a way that reflects all he wants to do in the flesh. You see, sin never delivers what it promises, and the pleasurable life sinners think they are pursuing always turns out to be a precisely the opposite. It's a hard road that inevitably leads to ruin and the ultimate literal death, a dead end, without meaning. In an overly harsh way, let's just say the younger son got exactly what he deserved. He reaped what he sowed. Now, to make things worse, and and again, we don't understand this, but the nature of the job alone automatically qualifies or seals this young man's status, all right? He would be permanently unredeemable, an outcast in Israel. 
we sometimes like our BLTs, you know, and our pork chops and, and so on. But this was unheard of in this first century Jewish culture. The younger son is a perfect illustration of what every sinner looks like. And some of you may be saying, yeah, what a jerk. Well, he is like you and me. Not just the worst sinner who has ever lived, but every sinner. You see, we were alienated from God without hope before Christ died. And we were given the opportunity to put our faith in Jesus. That's why, hopefully, grace never, ever, ever gets old. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes this. In those days, and what he's writing about are the days before you came to Jesus. The days before you became a new creation because of your faith. The day before you realize what God's grace actually is. And you can't believe it. He said, in those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God made to them. And look at this last line. You lived in this world without God and without hope. That is God describing anyone who isn't one of his kids, who have chosen to reject his grace, his offer of life, abundant and eternal. Now, the younger son's crisis is at a turning point. And I just want to say that. It's not the end of the story. So let's continue to read verse 17. When he finally came to his senses. Oh, there's certain verses I, as you open your Bibles that, that I encourage you to yellow and mark and, and circle. This is one of those places. When he, the younger son, finally came to his senses. He, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and I'm dying of hunger. I'm going to go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven, God, and you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. His plight has forced him to re-look at his life. He realizes he has sinned both against God and his father. He has a plan. He will go home and ask his dad to be hired as a servant. What's so cool, the son there knew there was abundant food to spare. But he would soon discover there would be abundant grace to receive. He cast himself on his father's mercy, forgiveness, and love. And let me just say this. No matter where you are, repentance always begins with an accurate assessment of one's condition. 
If you've never come to faith, if you're not a child of God, repentance means you recognize that you need a Savior. You're drowning. You cannot connect with God without putting your faith in Jesus. If you're a son or a daughter of God, and you recognize you've sinned, you're rebellious, you're running from the Father. Repentance also starts looking and says, you know what, I've offended you, God. And perhaps I've offended my family or the community. John MacArthur says this, and and I quote this because (laughs) he, he said it beautifully. He said, repentance is not a trite or temporary mood shift but a powerful, penetrating, soul-shattering, life-altering, attitude-changing, wholesale U-turn. You see, starting back home for this son was the second step in repentance. The first step was him owning that he had sinned against God and his father. The second step was literally turning around and walking back home. He was humbling himself. He had already admitted his sin, well, in his head to the father, but he started back home to face his father, tell him specifically, and re-enter the community he disgraced. We probably have no idea how hard this would have been. But the crisis in his life looked very mean, looked very gross, looked very hard, was something that drove him to this place. Here, this story gets so good. <laughs> Look at verse 20. I'm going to read through verse 24. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. Just picture this, because this is weird, all right? He ran to his son, he embraced him, and he kissed him. His son said to him, and just blurted it out, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But, it's another circle, underline. But, his father said to his servant, quick, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf. We have been fed. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now he's returned. He was lost and now he's found. The father sees him a long way off. I love the picture that's on your bulletin. I love the picture that's on our posters of this older Gentlemen, looking, looking. He's looking for his lost son. 
He should have been mad at them. He should have disowned them. He's a royal creep. He's looking. Note, it was the father himself looking. But he sees that son a long way off. And I'm I'm wondering, what would drive a man to do that? After he was disgraced, after all these things that happened to him? Why would you want him to return? Why would you be out there? Wouldn't you even just send a, if it was really important, go send one of your servants. Hey, this is your job every single day. I want you to stand here and I want you to look at the road and tell me if my younger son comes back. That's my job? Yeah, that's your job. That wasn't the job. He did it. And I, and I started wondering, because there's nothing in the scripture here, but was he looking for his son because he really knew his son? After all, he reared him. He knew his tendencies. He knew he would often fly off the cuff. He knew that, that, man, this was the wild one. He knew all that. But he also knew maybe, did he have a soft heart? That's all. Would he repent? Yeah, I, I think he will. I think he'll come back home. Was the father even surprised with what the son did with the money? Again, I don't have an answer there. But my guess is, I don't think he was. The guy doesn't save anything. The guy's totally selfish. Man, I give him this money, it's gone. I'm tossing this thing right down the outhouse. It's gone. Which makes, if this be the case, it makes the story even more shocking. If he knew all this about his son, why would he do this? But one day, one day, the father, the dad, saw something. It was a lone figure walking toward this state. His his heart began to flutter. Could, Could it be? And finally, as he gets close enough, he sees it's his son. And the scriptures say, filled with love and compassion. That's what ruled. He runs to his son. By the way, with his servants, because he talks to his servants. He runs to his son. This is so unusual. In fact, The scripture here says he sprinted. This is an old guy. This is a patriot. He sprinted. He didn't walk fast. He sprinted. Now this all happened, again, to us, not a big deal. Even though any older guy running is kind of a big deal. But but this happened during a time when patriarchs did not run. Okay, understand this. Normally the culture had rules for behavior. And one of the rules here, it would be outlandish and inappropriate in the Middle Eastern culture for those who are the head of estates to run to anything. They would saunder. They would kind of move. You know, they would not run. 
Now, the culture also had rules for the son's behavior. Normally, what would happen if anything like this did happen, the humiliated, the humiliated father would not even meet face-to-face with the son. He would send out a representative. He would want to make a public spectacle and shame the son. It's not what happened, and that's what froze the Pharisees. The image of a grown man sprinting down a dusty road to meet a derelict son would have shocked them. And then the image gets worse. The father hugs and the father kisses. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do this. He is extravagant. And then the son verbally repents right at that time. Father, I just want you to know, I have sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. It's in verse 21. And what does the father do? Absolutely shock you. He gives directives. Bring out the fine, not a robe. Bring out the finest robe. Probably for two reasons. Again, understand this culture. To deflect the abuse, the boy would have suffered. Because if he comes back smelling of pig slop and looking like he did, he would be shamed by everybody. But more than that, he was being told he was a highly favored son. Who treats him like that? What what is going on? You remember the story of Joseph, how he got a special robe? So here, son, you are special. Here's the finest robe I have. Hey, get a ring for his finger. This is no doubt a signet ring showing his status and authority as a son. Wait a minute. The guy just wasted everything. Hey, wait a minute. He stinks. Oh, no. Get a robe, get a ring, and give him some sandals. A big deal here. It differentiated between slave or servant and son. Sons had sandals. Sons had sandals. Then he said this. Kill the calf. (laughs) This treatment was already way overboard. This was absolutely crazy. And the next thing out of his mouth is, we're going to party. We're going to party. You were dead, now you're alive. You were lost, now you're found. We're going to kill. And again, in this culture, meat. Meat was a big deal, no matter how wealthy you were. They've been fattening up this calf, and we are going to party. The lesson is clear. Our assiduous God loves the lost pursues the lost, and joyously throws a party when they repent and are found. The gospel is clear. Everyone is sinned. Everyone is loved. Everyone is called to recognize their sinfulness, repent, and respond to God's grace. You know, this story may seem to be exaggerated. But it's not. It's not because it's describing God. Do 
Do you get it? Do you understand how much he loves? How much he cares? How much he desires a relationship? But he can't have that with everyone. You need to own the sin. Repent of your sin. In many ways, this story doesn't even adequately describe the grace that God extends to repenting sinners. And there's nobody. Again, we read it, nice story. They heard it from Jesus and they're going, are you kidding? No one, no one, no one, no one, no one does this. Jesus, that's a dumb story. No one. There isn't one dad that would do this. (laughs) Who treats us like this other than God? God is a loving and compassionate father. And my question to you this morning is this. What is your response to God's grace today? It's not actually even a hard question. Maybe you've never heard the gospel story where Jesus did love you and die on the cross so that you could have your sin paid for. And faith in Jesus gives you the privilege to become a son or a daughter of God. That's where it starts. You become part of God's family. But as I look around, I see so many of you know the Lord. You do. But have you thought about how extravagant God is and how even any sin in our life breaks that fellowship with God and he desires to run and to hug you and to run and hug me. But it's recognizing he is Lord and he is master and he is God. And we need to confess that sin be restored and be welcomed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I I don't get it. I I don't. There's probably not a person in this room that gets it. Why you are looking out for times we run. Why you're hoping that we repent and how you want to lavish us with a robe and a ring and some sandals when we deserve to be shunned and shamed and tossed aside. That's not you, God. I'm so grateful that you love us. 
And I'm so grateful you told us a story that helps us understand you. Lord, I pray even this day that if there's anyone, anyone who desires to have a better relationship with you, that they start today. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.